Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Tony Shen is an entrepreneur and co-founder of the fish health company Manolin. He studied at MIT before co-founding Manolin with his friend John. In this episode, we discuss why Tony and John moved to Norway and Bergen to build a software platform for the salmon industry, why data can help and solve many important issues for salmon farmers, and Tony's best advice for people that want to become entrepreneurs. Let's start the show. All opinions expressed by Christopher Wonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Wonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi everyone, welcome back. Super happy to have Tony joining the show. Tony, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be here. We just discussed coffee or tea guy. What did you end, why did you end up with tea and not coffee? For me, nighttime is tea time, um, but I will drink coffee all day. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Tell me about a typical day in your life, and then maybe we can introduce Manolin in that story as well, because you're quite busy nowadays. Sure. Yeah. Um, typical day for me, I think it varies quite a bit. Um, right now, you know, a lot of early mornings, um, I like to get up about five in the morning so I can talk to our team in Bergen. Um, and that's when my day gets started and then spend the day kind of on calls, building software, having meetings. Um, yeah, it kind of varies. And then, you know, towards the afternoon, we typically catch up with the team here in Denver um, and while everybody in Norway is asleep, but long days, but it's but, been fun. But waking up five in the morning, was it the same while you were studying at MIT or is it something you have to do now since you are as a founder in, in a startup? Uh, I, I don't know if it's being a founder, if it's growing up a little bit. Um, at MIT, it's actually the culture is very different. It's mostly late nights and very late mornings. Um, they actually have a rule where classes don't start before nine. So that's the first class. And then most people by their junior and senior year start to figure out that I can find ways to make my schedule work so I don't have a class until 10 or 11. So it's actually an opposite. I guess when you're in school, it's late nights and staying up late um and now i'm kind of a early morning person but Just okay switch. <laughs> but okay so from mit to startups was this like a normal trajectory growing up or do you think you, there's something in your upbringing that leaned you towards entrepreneurship mit and stuff or is it coincidence and just life happening yeah i mean i think for me i have a slightly unique path um a you know, it wasn't typical to go to an Ivy League or MIT from my high school. Um, I grew up in the South in in, in, in America. Um, and prior to, you know, the last couple of years, my high school actually didn't send anyone to MIT for, I think it was almost like 20 years. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a normal path, but entrepreneurship for me, you know, it really clicked. It's definitely an ingrained part of school. And, you know, when you go to MIT, you see all the students, brilliant people, people who have built great companies and, you know, it's very inspiring, but, you know, I didn't get any of that growing up. Um, I grew up in a town where our primary industry is tobacco. 
um, we're known for having, you know, one of the larger tobacco companies um, based. So that was my upbringing. But I mean, I think I had a very entrepreneurship type of attitude. Um, I always like to build things. I always like to do things by myself. Um, I, uh, back in high school and middle school, we had a long mowing business. Um, myself and a neighbor, you know, hustled around on so growing a business and doing my own thing was something I always had um, but it was really school at MIT that you kind of got really inspired and saw what was possible people building Dropbox or HubSpot um, and a lot of those great companies and to hear that you know they were just a couple years older than me at the time um, it was pretty eye-opening. So being in Boston, I actually went and visited MIT, and of course, you, you get inspired just by being around the place. Um, do you think it's actually important in your life that you've been at MIT, or do you feel like it's just education, or do you feel like that inspiration and seeing so many people working so hard and also having this like influence from people visiting and stuff actually matters when you're not building and scaling? No, um, I, I think it was super, super helpful, um, very inspiring to be around people that, you know, have done it. Um, I think it makes it, when you're in that environment, it just makes it seem a little bit closer. It makes it seem feasible. Um, I think, you know, you, I'd liken it to, you know, a lot of athletes when, you know, they get inspired when, you know, a professional athlete comes and trains with them and they see how hard they work. Um, they see what it really takes to kind of, you know, to make it. Um, and to be honest, it, it kind of, it's similar to our journey to Norway. Um, when when we came and visited Bergen, we really got a huge eye opening into what the aquaculture ecosystem looked like, as well as you know what kind of companies were actually being built, and it gave us the confidence that we thought we could make an impact and and also achieve it. So I think being in person and really you know seeing it firsthand makes a really big impact. Yeah, and just to add on that, can you also just tell us about like a typical guest that would visit MIT and share their stories because there have been some very big people at your campus. I think every time we discuss unicorns, you say that, okay, I remember that guy at MIT, either it's Patrick or someone from Airbnb or, or whatever, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it was one of the most influential classes I had was called the Founder's Journey. Um, so the, it was a whole class. It was twice a week. And the goal was for them to bring in alumni to talk about their actual journeys. And I was at MIT kind of towards, you know, 2010 or so. Um, and that class, you know, brought in some real big all-stars. Brad Feld came in, Drew Houston from Dropbox came in, um, Patrick Collison from Stripe. At the time, I mean, they weren't necessarily huge companies, um, but their stories, you know, they talked about, you know, where they ate, you know, what classes they went to, their struggles doing problem sets um, as homework. And then, you know, from there, you just saw their 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 kind of growth, right? Like they're, they're now stories that everybody kind of looks at. Um, but at the time, you know, they just came in, talked to us, asked, you know, it was just kind of a sit down and discussion. And, you know, that opened a lot of doors, but also kind of a lot of what the opportunity looked like. You know, when you hear Drew say, yeah, we just didn't want, you know, I, I built this thing on a bus. Um, and then we decided to give equity to a homeowner because we needed a place to actually live. So we gave away equity. Apparently that person became the best investor that they ever had as far as return. They gave away, you know, a room to a couple college kids for a few months and came out with more than all the Silicon Valley VCs. It's crazy. Can you now <laughs> go, I think you're, you're working for the government when the idea comes up about working with ocean and software or... 
how did that idea evolve in your head? And let's introduce the idea properly as well. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, one of the big passions and one of the big things that I learned was just the potential of software and data when I was in school, um, the impact that it can make on the world. I mean, I think when you look at it, it's changed a lot about this world and it will continue to, to make that impact. Um, when I graduated, I wanted to see what that potential looked like. And I thought a, a, a very great place to learn was in government. You know, how can technology and data really help scale what governments do? Um, so that's what I went to go and pursue when I moved to D.C. Um, was working with a government consulting firm, building data systems. Um, and stumbling across kind of the ocean space was, was a little bit random. Um, I was passionate about food systems. My co-founder and I, we, we were just random roommates um, and discovered oyster farms on the bay coast. Um, so this was in the Chesapeake Bay. And, you know, through those oyster farmers, we, they really taught us about, you know, what they were doing, growing protein, changing the food systems, um, growing these oysters, cleaning up the water. Um, and, you know, we thought it was the coolest thing, but we recognized that, you know, it was an industry that didn't have much tech. It didn't have much data. So it started as a hobby. We would just go down there on the weekends, visit, you know, one of the farmers said, hey, we have a guest house. You can just stay here. Um, John and I, you know, said that was great. We come down on the weekend and, and, and just write some code. Um, so that's really how it got started and how that pivot switched from working with the government into working with the oceans. How would you sort of describe the food system? Because maybe it's a different way of viewing it as an American compared to in the region. Or how would you like describe the food system and how complex it is? Because producing something in big scale always have some some trade-offs, right? So how can you like get an introduction into the food system? Maybe since you work so close with it. Absolutely. I mean, so one of the work I, I, I did some projects at the Food and Drug Administration um, when, when I was here in, with the government. Um, and through that, I kind of got a glimpse into how the food system worked. But I also had kind of an outside passion, just, you know, liking food. And, you know, I was curious about, you know, the impacts of our food systems, you know, coming out of college, I was looking into things like aquaponics, you know, vertical greenhouses, all of these different, you know, new things that were coming up at the time. Um, John and I actually built a aquaponics setup in our apartment. We had, we had a couple fish in a fish tank and we started growing some herbs um, and was cycling that water. So, you know, trying to just explore with it, um, looking at these different components. But, you know, I think what you mentioned there, one of the things that's really hard to grasp is scale. Um, so you can talk to the oyster farmers and see what that scale looks like. And you look at the numbers when it comes to salmon farming and shrimp farming and what total consumption looks like. Um, it's such a big, big problem. And, you know, what I've learned, come to learn and, you know, the part that I think is exciting is that there's just so many challenges when it comes to food. You can talk about producing food that's good for the environment. You can talk about it at scale when you talk about the entire world. Um, there's just so much going on and so many challenges. It's, it's really a core piece of, I think, what our future looks like. Um, we got to find a way to feed all these people and we got to find a way that does it in balance with the ocean and or with the world and the environment. So that I think is what really got us into this food system. But yeah, the food system in general, you have to, there's so many trade-offs. Um, there's not one single solution in any of these problems. Got you. So when you decided to act on this idea, if you were to submit to YC Combinator or something, what's the simplest way of putting the idea? Because I guess at the start, it was basically maybe just two, three sentences on a vision plate and then you, that's the vision and then go build it, right? So how would you 
explain the concept in the simplest terms possible? Oh, simplest terms possible. Um, I think the simplest terms possible is it, we use the tagline healthy farms for healthy seas. Um, and that I think is, encompasses a lot of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, we think that you know, when it comes to the oceans, the healthy farms will contribute to creating a healthier ocean. Um, and, you know, if you want to talk VCs and, you know, the markets and whatnot, the oceans is, is an untapped one. Um, it's an unregulated space. The amount of activity that goes on, I think the ocean represents some of the largest challenges that we have in the world. Um, it also represents potentially a solution to a lot of those challenges. Um, so the opportunity, you know, we think is definitely there. But what it comes down to is helping farmers have the healthiest farms that they can. Um, we see that as the biggest and most important asset um, when it comes to growing this industry and the challenges ahead. Maybe you also just can explain the, the sort of the, the balance or maybe the development between aquaculture and wild fisheries. So people also get that point, right? Because if you're going to produce more food and scale, it's not going to come from wild, wild fisheries. You have to sort of use aquaculture as a tool, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges and questions that we hear, particularly here in the States. Um, they don't, we, in the U.S., we don't know much about aquaculture. It's not a big industry, you know, it's not viewed as, you know, a big system. Um, and to be honest, it's viewed pretty negatively when you bring it up. Um, but going back to what we talked about with, you know, food systems and the scale and the problems ahead, um, when it comes to aquaculture, I, I think in wild fisheries, um, I think it's really interesting when you look at the facts that, you know, one in seven people in the world depend on seafood as their primary source of protein. Um, I think you can shoot holes in any sort of way that we produce food on land, in the water. There's, there's positives and negatives to every single solution, but aquaculture, I think has a lot of potential. Um, it's not to say the industry hasn't made mistakes in the past, but the potential is always been there. Uh, you know, I don't think we can continue fishing, you know, wild fisheries are sustainable long-term. Um, I just don't think those numbers, you know, match up I mean, there's no way we can keep fishing the oceans. Um, and we got to figure out how to do it in a better way and everything can't be on, on land. Um, so we got to figure out what's the right way that we want to accomplish it in, in the oceans. Um, agree. But yeah, so I think aquaculture has to fit in. So then take us, why did you go to Norway and Bergen? Is it mm -hmm. like that it has to be a great story because you work at the government, you decide to build a tech startup using tech in, in ocean farms and, and fish farmers. So why Bergen? What did you get on the plane? No. So, you know, I, I think it goes back to a lot of the stories that we've heard from our oyster friends. Um, a lot of those guys, you know, it, it, at a simple level, right? They need inventory software. They need to report properly. They want to make sure if disease breaks out, they can track it down. Um, but what they got really interested in, you know, one of their biggest challenges that they asked us was, could you help us reduce our mortality? We lose half of these oysters every year and we don't know why. Um, and, you know, what that really, when we start digging into that problem, you know, what we discovered was that the challenges and the reasons for why you would lose half of a farm can come from anywhere. It can come from, you know, runoff downstream. It can come from a storm. It can come from an algae bloom. It can come from the neighboring farm or, you know, a boat coming by. Um, all of these 
factors could contribute to it. So in order to solve the problem, you really had to harness a large amount of data if you wanted to try to predict all of these issues to help them really, you know, lose less than half of, 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 of their farm every year. Um, so that's number one, what we identified was we needed to find a lot of data if we really wanted to solve these types of challenges. Um, and what we recognized and how we ended up in Norway was that when you look at the salmon market, the amount of data that has been generated in this space is enormous. Um, the farms have had software for 20 years, cameras, sensors, everything is decked out. There's so much data. Even, you know, the Norwegian government collects and publicizes a ton of data. There was no industry, no market in aquaculture that has the scale of data that 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 Norway does. Um, so we quickly recognized that you know if we wanted to really succeed in helping farmers raise you know have the healthiest farms, we needed to start with the place with the most data. Um, so we got on a plane, went to Bergen for a couple of weeks, um, you know, did a quick visit, and basically fell in love with the industry, the city, um, everything. So at that point, when you go to Norway, are you convinced to building this software or is it just a tour to see and if it's right for us to, to establish us in Norway and build or what the mind, what is the mindset when you went to Bergen the first time? Yeah, I, it was really just exploration um, at, at that point. You know, it goes back to when, when you talked about, you know, influences and where's the inspiration comes from. Um, going to Bergen was, you know, we were told this was the center of aquaculture, right? This is the Silicon Valley of aquaculture. You won't find the resources anywhere else. Um, and we had to see it for ourselves. And, you know, one of the places, one of the, 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 the big themes that, you know, I've reflected on is when you think about Silicon Valley and startups, you know, why do it, does everyone flock there? Uh, it's where all the ideas are. You can talk to somebody, you know, you can go to a coffee shop, a bar, and you never know, you may end up with a connection to an investor and maybe kind of that, 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 that groundbreaking thing that, that happens for, for a company. Um, and you just can't find those opportunities anywhere else. When it comes to our industry and aquaculture, Bergen represented that. You know, you go to the bars, everybody will talk about salmon. They'll talk about salmon prices. You know, they'll talk about what work they're doing. Um, you can find those opportunities in Bergen unlike any place in the world. Um, and we saw that firsthand, you know, driving up and down the, 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 the East Coast looking for ocean farmers, oyster farmers. We're driving miles and hours, you know, every time just to get to the next farm where you have a city like Bergen, where you have researchers, government, everybody is involved with it in one way or another. Um, and, you know, that really is what inspired us was this was the place that we could learn faster than anywhere else. Got you. So you talked a bit about, you mentioned the touring up and down. How important is it to actually visit and not just read about it sitting in Bergen and going to bars? Because, you know, we, we know this, Tony, but I don't think people hearing this know how, how the people are, the pioneers, because they like to be where the action happens and not in the cities talking about it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a... Uh... I, I make a lot of comparisons to the work that we did, you know, visiting oyster farms, because I liken it very similarly to the industry in Norway. It's just many, you know, a couple decades behind, in a sense. Um, but the types of people that, that we met were very similar. 
Um, and like you said, one of the things that, that John and I really wanted to, to, to accomplish in Norway was to visit up and down the coast. You know, we've come to learn that Norway is very, very different. Northern Norway, Western Norway, Eastern Norway, they all got different cultures and, and different types of people. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from a lot of it. But going back to, you know, why is it so important, you know, the industry pioneers, I think you don't find an industry. I don't know if there's many industries like this. Um, cause salmon farming, the guys who started it, the guys who threw a net pen off a dock, you know, a 10, a, 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 I don't even know, five meter by five meter net, um, 30, 40 years ago, and just threw some salmon in and see, saw if they could kept them alive are the ones running these companies now. And that growth and trajectory is something I don't know if you've seen anywhere else. Um, and I think it's crazy that, you know, the market and the industry is so advanced now, but it really just started with the same guys who, you know, I think of, I could have been one of those people at some point, you know, I've definitely caught fish on my fishing rod, put them in a tank and try to keep them at home for as long as possible. Right. It's, 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 it's that similar feeling. Um, and I got the same sense with the oyster guys. Like, I think one of the, the interesting things you hear is if you go to an oyster farmer, oyster, the oyster industry, you know, has two sides. There's the kind of high end side that is like the wine bar. You got your dozen oysters um, and, and you sip your wine and it's three American dollars per oyster. Or you can go to the farm and sit down with the farmer, sit on the dock, you know, and crack open oysters, have a beer, sit by the actual grill. Um, and it's the two different sides, same food, but it's two different sides. And you kind of see that with the salmon markets too, and the guys who are part of it. Definitely. So while you're meeting this, these uh, pioneers in the industry, how do you see your product and the product you're building in Mandolin help helping them? Because I think you, I, I don't know if it's like pivoting a lot of times during your, your years, but you have to sort of always reflect, am I building the right product for these guys that are so good, right? So can you tell, tell us a bit about those like processes? Because I guess you get new input all the time. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think it's something that's, it, it, it's a challenge for any startup, right? Finding product market fit, finding what your customers want. Um, I mean, from our side, right, we, we didn't come from a farming background. We came from a tech background. Um, and because of that, you know, we've had to stay very diligent about the learning and the feedback that we get. Helping them, I mean, we're never going to be better farmers. We can never, you know, we're never going to be able to replace that experience and that work. Um, but what we can do is really focus on the efficiencies and, you know, where can we save time for people? Um, what has changed in the industry, in, in my opinion, is, you know, there's more critics, you know, there's more people that want to see what's going on. And managing this data, managing this information is becoming a bigger and bigger challenge. And it's, I think, becoming the responsibilities of the companies to be able to figure that out. So that's where I think tech can really help. But the experience and the decision making, you can't replace that. I mean, the best that we can try to do is is to give farmers time back in their, their actual day, because what we hear is they want to spend it on the farm. Um, you know, and that's what we want to make happen is get out of the office, get back out to the farm as easy as possible. Um, that's been the kind of mission and the line of thinking that we have been following when we come with iterations. Can you explain how you would like the farmers to use your software and tool? So maybe it's easier for people listening to understand how they, how, how you want the farmers to use Manolin software. 
Yeah, and I, I guess we haven't necessarily given a full pitch of the product, um, but I mean, what what we're doing is building tools and data insights um, to help farmers make better decisions or more informed decisions, um, and really to help them save time and to be out on the farm more. And you know, when when you're talking about how we do that and you know the areas, one of the the things that I think is changing in the industry is this interest over fish health. Um, and that has been our focus. You know, the farmers, that is their most important asset um, is having great health and managing it is becoming more and more challenging. So the ways that we help is for one, we help ma manage data. So we bring in all of a farm's data from their inventory systems, from their lab reports, um, from their neighboring areas um, and bring it into one place so they can see it in one specific area. The number two thing that we do is we help them track, you know, metrics. You know, one of the, 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 the key things you hear from any farmer is they can tell you specifically exactly what happened last year, two years ago, five years ago. Um, they know their seasons very, very well. Um, but what we have learned is as these organizations have grown, tracking this information over time and being able to measure it becomes harder. Um, it becomes you know, I guess like a fishing story, it, you can, it, the fish always seems bigger every time you, you kind of talk about it. So having numbers to back up those decisions is really important. And then the, 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 the last piece that we really want to work on is the forecasting side. So not to, forecasting will never change, you know, uh, uh, the way a farmer makes a decision. Um, but it can really augment a lot of the kind of thinking, um, you know, what are the risks I'm coming? Am I at risk of a disease because of certain things? Um, I believe that the data can tell you a lot that can help with that decision-making process. Let's give an example, even if it's CLS or whatever, because just people listening. So you have different farmers operating maybe close to each other. And if something breaks out, a bacteria or CLS, uh, your data can actually help people be aware of that quicker, right? Absolutely. Um, that's, that's what, what our, our goal and mission is. Um, I think the, if we want to dive into one of those specific examples, when it comes to a disease such as PD, um, farmers have many, the industry has grown. There's a lot of choices um, and a lot of ways to try to combat a disease or an illness. You can have a different egg. You can have a vaccine. You can change up, you know, your, 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 your cleaning process. There's so many of these factors. When it works, it's hard to know what's the actual reason that it works. And when it doesn't work, it's hard to know why that was the case. Um, so that's where I think software and data can, can do a lot to help slice and dice this um, to make better judgment calls. So, you know, can we see something in the data that seems like a trend? Um, can we measure that over time and really get to a confirmation if that is the actual case and whether that specific reason was why something worked or didn't work? Um, when it comes to a disease like PD, you know, that's that's a very specific example. And just to, to sort of like emphasize that, because what makes this so hard is that we're talking about biology to a large degree. Yeah. And it's so hard. I mean, Silicon Valley, I've talked about this, like software meets biology for, I don't know, five, 10 years, but <laughs> yeah. it's very hard to crack. Can you just like explain how hard it is to forecast and explain biology in data? I know it's coming more and more, but like, that's not an easy problem to work on. It's, it's uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's the way we think about it is, you know, 
you're never going to know it all. And in the oceans in particular, that's a very unknown thing when it comes to what we as humans understand from a science point of view, right? You know, you, we always hear stories on space versus the oceans. We don't know anything of what's going on. Um, so it's a constant and ongoing struggle. And, you know, I think the best we can do is try to generate more information and continue chasing a lot of these insights. Um, but yeah, I just, when it comes to the, the biological aspects of farming you can't you can't you can't figure it out there's always going to be unknowns something's always going to come up um but i think the science in us wants to explore it because also yeah. it's also always evolving right so it's not like if you figure out biology you like you're done you're just like okay now it's day one and day two will be different <laughs> absolutely yeah it's there's 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 a ton of random occurrences right and you know, when I, one of the facts that, that, that I've been, that I think is so interesting is when it comes to salmon farming, right? People, a, people will compare it to, to cattle, to chickens, to, to pigs and poultry. Um, but when you think about the amount of generations that have occurred, salmon farming is, you know, what do we have? Maybe 10, 20 at most generations of fish that have ever been raised and kind of bred. When you compare that to the other species that we farm, um, you know, that's thousands of, 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 of generations. We've done it for so long. Um, there's been a lot of times to kind of figure it out and, you know, see what the different options are. But when it comes to fish, we're still so early in that process. Um, we, it's really, it hasn't even developed yet. So last question, Tony, before we hang up, uh, if you can forecast your company uh, maybe two years forward and then five years forward, what are the milestones you would like to see just so that people can understand what you want, want to accomplish going forward the next years? Yeah. I mean, I think within the next year, year and a half, our focus is going to be continuously Norway. Um, you know, our goal is to build, you know, what's valuable for the farmers and really putting them first. Um, I think as you grow from there, kind of when you kind of forecast outside of three, five years, um, it's about how this data and, you know, what the farmers are doing can help grow the industry. Um, how does it help it scale better? How, how does it help it scale in a sustainable way? And how do we bring these tools to the larger markets? Um, you know, whether it's, you know, the growing seafood or sorry, seaweed and kelp markets or filter feeders or shrimp markets, but how do you scale what's going on in Norway into, you know, these other markets? But that's what we look at when you're looking at two to five years. So in five years, then we're talking emerging markets because this is a global company. It's not like you're going to end in, end in Norway, right? Yeah, we, we definitely ho hope to keep expanding. Um, and that is definitely the plan um, is to keep looking at other markets. Perfect. So for people interested in maybe having an interesting job, this could be, it, it's different joining a company in year. I don't know what year that is. Is, is it third, fourth year? Two. Yeah, two. Yeah, yeah it's about so, two and a half. Because now you're getting to be a part of scaling. I mean, the first two years is a lot of trying and failing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, the first two years, it's, it can seem hectic, right? You, you don't know where, where things are going. You know, there's a lot of pivots going on, um, a lot of new ideas, but um, at this stage, it's, it's really about growth and, and, you know, scaling up what's going on to, to impact more and, and help our farmers for sure. Perfect. Perfect ending. Thank you so much, Tony, for taking the time. It was awesome. Thank you. This has been great. Hi everyone. Christopher here again. Just a few things before you leave the show. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, 
Twitter is the place. Just go to at Chris Wunheim. You can also find this information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in to the next episode and take care.